Hi, this is Brent White, and welcome to my sermon podcast. In today's sermon, I'm going to preach a lot about a verse that many Bible scholars consider the most difficult in the entire New Testament. I'm referring to 1 Peter 3, verse 19, which says that at some point after his death, Christ went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. This verse has been used as a proof text to justify that part of the Apostles' Creed that we United Methodists don't say anymore, which is that Christ descended into hell. I hope when you hear my interpretation of verse 19, you'll understand that Jesus didn't descend into hell, that this means something very different. And what it means, along with the rest of this scripture passage, ought to encourage all of us Christians to live our lives without fear because of the victory that Jesus won for us. So, our scripture comes from 1 Peter 3, verses 18 to 22, which I'm going to read now. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. I have never personally been inside an Ikea store. To my knowledge, I have never assembled a piece of Ikea furniture, but my wife... Yes, and Lisa is telling me I have not. But Lisa, my wife, is a champ at assembling these things. Now, so I don't know this from experience, but I know the reputation of the instructions that come with IKEA furniture, that they are notoriously difficult to assemble. They don't have words, for one thing, in the instruction manual from what I've read. But I know this in part because there are funny memes, you know, on social media and there are satirical articles about how difficult IKEA furniture is to assemble. For example, there was one BuzzFeed article recently that was entitled, Why Building IKEA Furniture is Probably Satan's Favorite Hobby. (laughs) Two, Two years ago. When Ikea, now this is serious now, but two years ago when Ikea announced that they were going to assist Syrian refugees by by shipping um, uh, these ready-to-assemble refugee shelters, (laughs) somebody on The Onion wrote, haven't these people been through enough without without the added struggle of assembling Ikea products? But we all know, I mean, I know this from experience, the the frustration of trying to assemble something only to get to the end of the assembly process thinking that we're finished. And there are these mysterious pieces 
<laughs> that are, are left over. This happened one time when I was helping my brother-in-law assemble a baby crib. These pieces were, were left over. We don't know where or how they fit in, but they're probably important. <laughs> um, Anyway, uh, and when that happens, of course, you probably want to use words that you wouldn't want your pastor to hear, or you wouldn't want your pastor to say. (laughs) I've done that too. Well, theologian N.T. Wright was describing this very passage of scripture, and he said that it's a lot like that. We've assembled the main structure Peter, as I said last week, as I've said throughout this sermon series, is writing to encourage a group of Christians who are suffering persecution and even possible death on account of their faith in Christ. And so his words last week from from chapter three, verses 17 and 18 are very fitting. They're very encouraging when he says that just As Christ suffered unjustly, you too will suffer unjustly. And he reminded them that God transformed Christ's suffering. He transformed the greatest evil and injustice that the world had ever seen. The death of his son Jesus on the cross. He transformed it into the greatest good that the world had ever seen. And that good is The the means by which all of us can have our sins forgiven and can be saved and can spend eternity with God. If God can transform the worst evil in the world into the greatest good, then think of what he can do with our own suffering in the world. That was the message that I talked about last week. And all of that makes good sense. But then we get to verses 19 and 20. And it's as if we've built a piece of Ikea furniture and we have these extra pieces left over. We don't know how they fit in. We don't know what to do with them. So since verses 18 through 20 are one long sentence, let me read them together and then we'll try to make sense of what's going on. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So far, so good. But now there's this. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, When God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. In the name of God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. See y'all later, right? that's, That's clear, right? I mean, well, if you're scratching your head and wondering what on earth Peter is talking about, you are not alone. In fact... No less a Bible scholar and Bible interpreter than Martin Luther himself had this to say about these verses. A wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament. 
so that I do not know for a certainty what Peter means. These verses raise so many questions for us. When did Christ go and proclaim to these spirits in prison? Where is this prison? And who exactly are these spirits? And, And what do they have to do with Noah and the ark? Now, let me begin by focusing on a very common interpretation. In fact, you can find evidence of this interpretation in our very own United Methodist hymnal. Turn to number 881. Turn and you'll see what I'm talking about. Now you say, I don't don't need to turn there. I know the Apostles' Creed. We say it nearly every week, but look at it in the hymnal because you will see on page 881 a couple of footnotes. And one of those footnotes occurs after the line that reads, he was crucified, dead, and buried. You follow the asterisk, look at the footnote, and it gives you a, a line that uh, is traditionally found in this creed. And that line is, he descended into hell. Now, that line was actually the last thing that was added to the Apostles' Creed. It was not originally in the Creed. It was added a couple of centuries later. But we Methodists used to recite this line until about 1939 when the Northern Methodists and the Southern Methodists reunited. Since then, we haven't usually said that line. Um, But the biblical foundation for Christ's descent into hell is based in large part on these scriptures that the scripture that we've read today. Um, Now, you've probably heard me preach before that Christ did indeed experience hell for us on the cross. I believe that strongly. I believe that in the moment that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, which was the same moment that corresponded to Jesus quoting from Psalm 22, saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, I believe that Jesus Christ felt, experienced the very absence of God and to experience God's absence is the very definition of hell. So by all means, Christ experienced hell, but it happened on the cross, not after he was crucified and died. But that's not the kind of hell that the creed is talking about when it says he descended into hell. And that's certainly not what verses 19 and 20 refer to. And many Christians over the past 2,000 years have interpreted these verses to mean that after Jesus was crucified, he went to a spiritual prison, which is hell or Hades or some realm of the dead. And he preached to the disobedient souls that were found there, giving them an opportunity to repent of their sins and be saved. And if he did this for the souls of unbelievers who lived during the time of Noah, 
then surely he'll do it again for other lost souls in hell. I had seminary professors who accepted this interpretation. And this appeals to us, I think, because it holds out hope that that non-believers who've died can get a second chance. That Christ will even go to hell itself in order to rescue sinners. And many of us have loved ones who've passed away, who were non-believers, or or at least people who've died that, that we're not so sure about. And this interpretation gives us comfort because we like the idea of a second chance even after death. I know I do. The only problem is that's just not what this scripture is saying. It's not a good interpretation. First of all, why would Peter say that Christ preached only to the spirits or the souls of the people who were alive during the time of Noah? People have been disobedient for all time. There were people who were disobedient at the time of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, people who were disobedient during the time of Moses, Joshua, and the judges. People were disobedient during the time of the kings, Saul, David, Solomon, during the divided kingdom, during the exile. People have been disobedient forever, including up to right when Jesus was born. And since then, people have been disobedient. Yet Peter emphasizes that this preaching that Christ did took place uh, only for those spirits who were around during the time of Noah. That's, that's got to mean something. Well, it would be strange to point that out unless there was some significance to that. The second reason that this is not a good interpretation is because of the thief on the cross in Luke chapter 23. You remember the thief on the cross Probably he wasn't a thief. Probably he was a dangerous terrorist who murdered people. Still, he's next to Jesus being crucified. He he turns to Jesus in faith. He repents of his sins. He places his faith in Christ. And Jesus says, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Today. Jesus doesn't say, but first I have to go to hell and preach to these spirits of these disobedient people. No, Jesus indicates that the next place he's going to be is heaven, not hell. The third reason this isn't a good interpretation is because of what Peter says in verse 18, that Christ was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Now, some Christians over the years have believed that being a made, excuse me, being made alive in the spirit refers to that time in between Jesus's death and resurrection um, before he was resurrected, before he had a physical body again. And um, but there's there's good reason why that's not the case. First of all, if he was made alive in the spirit, that would suggest that shortly before that he was dead in the spirit. And that doesn't make any sense or, 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 you know, that when he died physically, he also died spiritually in some way or, or his soul wasn't already alive. We don't believe that. 
Biblically speaking, I mean, your soul doesn't die when you physically die, and neither did Jesus'. So that doesn't, that doesn't make sense to us. No, most Bible scholars today believe that being made alive in the Spirit doesn't refer to, you know, the, the time between Jesus' death and resurrection, but it actually refers to Jesus' own resurrection. Paul makes reference in his great chapter on bodily resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. He makes reference to, uh, he, he, at one point, he contrasts um, our natural bodies, the bodies that we have now in this life, with the spiritual bodies that we will have in resurrection. And he's already made it clear, and the Gospels have already made it clear. It's clear throughout the Bible that resurrection means that we have physical bodies. They are at least physical, but they're more than physical as we understand it. Think about Jesus' own body when he was resurrected. He could eat fish. He could embrace his friends. They could touch him. They could feel him. But he could also walk through locked doors. He could disappear and reappear. So he was physical, but he was more than physical. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that our resurrection bodies will be just like his. And they will the resurrection will be sort of in the in the realm of the spirit. That's what this inter, that's what it means to have a spiritual body. It's a spirit empowered kind of body. Um, it's it's a it's a life and existence that takes place in a different realm from this physical realm. But it is physical. So this, uh, this being made alive in the Spirit refers to nothing less than Jesus' own resurrection. Finally, and perhaps most importantly, Jesus tells a parable which involves hell in Luke chapter 16. It's the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And Jesus describes a great chasm separating heaven from hell. And he says that no one can cross from one place to the other. The rich man does not get a second chance, and it seems likely that he wants a second chance. No, it's clear from Scripture that as much as we might want there to be, a second chance. It's just not found in Scripture. Scripture seems to rule out the possibility. Now, there are still a lot of questions that we have about the afterlife, about heaven and hell, um, that, that the Bible simply doesn't answer. What we can affirm, what we know for sure, is that God is the judge of who goes where, and that God is going to be fair, that we can trust God with his judgment. Um, It is not our job to say who is in hell right now. We don't know. We don't know, for instance, in the last moments of someone's life, whether or not they, they come to saving faith and they place their trust in Jesus, just like the thief on the cross, for instance. We, we just don't know but we, can, we know that God is loving and fair, and so we can trust that that is true. But it's not our job to be the judge. God 
is the judge. We, we just don't have all of our questions answered in Scripture. But brothers and sisters, we are making a grave mistake if we believe that it doesn't matter if we fail to witness to our loved ones. It doesn't matter if we fail to share the gospel with them. It doesn't matter if we fail to fulfill the great commission to make disciples for Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter because after all, the Lord's going to give them a second chance after they die. The only safe assumption, the only biblical assumption that we can make is that people have this time right now to make a decision for Christ. And this time is running out for all of us. So our mission is urgent. Our mission is urgent this week as we sponsor and work at Vacation Bible School. It's urgent as we share the gospel with the children whom God is sending our way starting this evening. Let every one of us volunteers stay focused on one goal, sharing the gospel with these kids through our words and through our actions. We are not simply giving the children of this community a rewarding experience this week. We're not simply giving their parents free babysitting this week. We're not simply playing games and singing songs and doing crafts with these children. Everything we do this week is in hopes that these children will hear and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Nothing less than that. Now we often talk about using Vacation Bible School as a as a means of planting seeds in the lives of these children and their families. And that's a good and necessary start. These past few months, certainly these past few weeks, so many people have been tilling the soil to prepare to plant seeds in the souls of these children. And we hope in the lives of their families and the souls of their families too. Um, But let's not be satisfied with merely planting a seed. Shouldn't we be better farmers than that? We know from experience that a lot of these kids, in fact, most of these kids who are not connected to our church already are going to come to vacation Bible school. And they're going to leave. They're going to come this week. We won't see them again. Maybe we'll see them at Fall Festival. Maybe we'll see them at the live nativity. Maybe we'll see them next year at the Easter egg hunt. We likely won't see them again in worship or doing anything to learn about Jesus. Are we happy with that? We can't be. So let's figure out and let's pray about what we need to be doing to reach them in addition to the good work that so many of us are going to be involved in this week. Jesus didn't say to his disciples, look around, look look at the fields, see that they are filled with seeds. 
He said, look and see that the fields are white for harvest. So as we're gardening, as we're planting these seeds, let's let's not forget about watering the garden and fertilizing the garden and working to, 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 to prepare the soil so that we can harvest. So I've talked about what this scripture isn't saying. What is it saying? Here's my best interpretation based on the research that I've done over these past few weeks. Back in Genesis chapter 6, immediately before the flood, the Bible describes the work of fallen angels, literally demons, who are cooperating with humanity to work a lot of evil in this world. And of course, Satan and his army of demons continue to do great harm today. But the Greek word for for spirits almost always refers to angels and demons, not to human souls, going back to that earlier interpretation. So I believe that Peter here is talking about fallen angels or or evil spiritual forces or demons or Satan or whatever you want to call them. And so, in Christ's resurrection, Jesus sent the following message to these evil spirits. You just lost. You thought that your evil work could derail God's plan of salvation in this world. But you were wrong. I didn't give in to your temptations. I remained faithful to my father and I did what I needed to do to defeat sin and death. I lived the life of perfect obedience to my father that humanity was unable to live for itself. I died the death they deserved to die. I suffered God's wrath, which which they deserved to suffer. And as a result, everyone who unites his life with mine in faith, as represented through baptism, will be spared the hell that you and Satan and all the other evil spiritual forces wanted so badly for them. You've been working to destroy these human beings that I made ever since the very beginning, including back during the time of Noah. But my atoning death on the cross in my resurrection proves that you failed. Something like that, I believe, is going on in this passage. Another interpretation, by the way, the one that John Wesley believed in, and this is a good interpretation, but I still like this mine better, um, is that um, it's referring to something that Jesus did in the past through the Holy Spirit. He was preaching through Noah when Noah was on the earth, and he was preaching to these people during Noah's generation. It was the Spirit of Christ that was working through Noah. And, and of course, the Holy Spirit was working through prophets like Noah and others. And so that's not a terrible interpretation, but, but it seems most likely that um, 
that this is referring to something that Jesus does after his resurrection. If so, can you see how encouraging um, this message would be to Christians who were facing persecution and suffering? Peter emphasizes that in the world before the flood, a world in which evil and, and violence were rampant, a world facing God's judgment for its sins, God saved a small number of people, eight to be exact, Noah's family. And these Christians in Peter's churches needed to know that they were in a similar situation, that though they were few in number, especially compared to the to the, the size and the might and the power of the Roman Empire, which opposed them, they too were saved because they believed, not simply from a flood, but for eternity through faith in Christ and his resurrection. One encouraging word for us here is that none of us ought to be in love with large numbers. Truthfully, I'm always tempted to fall in love with large numbers. Numbers of people, numbers of visitors, numbers of professions of faith, numbers of baptism, numbers of compromands, um, numbers in terms of dollars, you know, in the offering plate, numbers. I love large numbers. But Peter tells us here that we don't need to be in love with large numbers. Because sometimes God likes to work with small numbers. And this reminds us, I mean, I was... I was hitting it pretty hard about Vacation Bible School and our, our, our efforts to evangelize and to continue to share the gospel with these children and their families, even after VBS is done. Look, I'm not saying we're going to have dozens, we should have dozens and dozens of children who are going to join the church and become faithful disciples of Jesus. I think it's clear from Peter's words here that you know, that may not happen. We may just have a few. But that's okay. And please note that I said a few, not zero. So all that to say, I want us to keep working and praying and working and praying and working and praying some more until we, until we realize this kind of harvest. One more encouragement from this scripture. Notice in verse 22 that Peter says that now that Christ has ascended to heaven, he is reigning, that's R-E-I-G-N, reigning, reigning over all the world, not at some point in the future after the second coming, but right now, Peter says, all angels, authorities, and powers have been subjected to him. That's something that's happening now. What does this mean? It means that Satan can't do anything to us except what our Lord Jesus allows him to do. Satan has a real but constrained power over this world. In Ephesians 2, Paul calls the devil the prince of the power of the air. 
Jesus, in John's gospel, refers to him as a ruler. But, but even this power is now subjected to Christ because of his resurrection. This doesn't mean that what Satan does in our world isn't evil and it can't harm us. I mean, these churches to whom Peter is writing, they knew firsthand the kind of real harm that the devil could do in the world. In fact, I was in one of your Sunday school classes last week and I saw good old Andy Stanley um, talking in one of his DVDs about he compared like this kind of spiritual warfare to um, germs, right? Were some of you in there? And like, it's sort of like we can't see, you know, the bad stuff that these, that these uh, germs do, that this bacteria or whatever does. But that's kind of what it's like um, through, you know, this kind of demonic influence in our world. I'm not talking about, you know, um, little guys in horns with uh, cloven hooves and, you know, uh, um, pitchforks, right? I mean, this, that's not how, that's not what the devil is or, or how he works in the world. It's not a cartoon. Um, it's, he has real power. But my point is that, that the Lord is, uh, is not letting that power um, destroy those of us who, um, who continue to trust in Christ, even though uh, the devil certainly wants to destroy us. And we can believe the devil is always working to destroy us. Um, so um, we can be confident um, that so long as we keep trusting in Jesus, God will, God will transform whatever bad stuff that the devil is doing into something good for us and for our world. Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 makes this same point when he talks about his thorn in the flesh. We don't know what that is. Something bad, probably some kind of physical ailment that Paul was experiencing. That's a lovely sound, isn't it? Um, Something uh, that some physical ailment Paul was experiencing. And um, whatever it was, he called it a messenger from Satan sent to torment him. And then a couple of verses later, he says that, that it was a gift from God to keep him humble. So this thing that Satan sent Paul's way to torment him was also used by God for Paul's good. And again, I believe God is always transforming whatever the devil does into something good for us as long as we keep on trusting. Um, So I'm going to go out on a limb and imagine that some of you are suffering right now. Um, You can be confident that even if the devil didn't cause your suffering, and he might have, biblically speaking, the devil is at least doing everything in his power to make it worse, to harm you. But please remember, as you are suffering, who's really in charge here? Remember that it's as if Jesus Christ has his foot on the neck of Satan, and he's making him bend to his will. Our Lord will transform the worst the devil can do to you into something good. Just please keep trusting in him. Does that make sense? You okay with that? (laughs) Okay. Almighty God, 
Sometimes your word is not as clear as we would like it to be. And um, surely this is a case. Um, But I hope that even through my words, um, we have a better grasp of what you are trying to say. At the very least, you are giving us an encouraging message of hope, um, especially during times in our lives when we suffer. Remind us that your son Jesus is reigning right now. And the, the, the worst that Satan can throw at us um, will not be enough to overcome your goodness. And we thank you for that. We pray again for the good work that our church will be doing this week to plant seeds of faith in the lives of these children and to also water the garden, water those seeds and fertilize those seeds and continue to tend the garden until we see harvest. Let each one of us pray for that. Let each one of us work toward that. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you're on the south side of Atlanta on Sunday morning, I hope you'll consider joining us for worship at Hampton United Methodist Church, which is in downtown Hampton, Georgia, on West Main Street. We have two services. We have a 9 o'clock acoustic contemporary service and an 11 o'clock traditional Thanks, and I hope to see you there.